There's a lot written about mothers and children, but sometimes it seems as if fathers remain in the background, shadowy authority figures, or the guy who's always in the garage fixing something or stuck at the office placating an angry boss. But on this Selected Shorts, fathers are front and center. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer. Stay with me and give dads a break. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. In classic literature and in popular culture, mothers are often the focus. They are powerful nurturers or domestic goddesses or fascinating and transgressive figures. But they're always big shapers of their children's lives. Fathers get less of the stage, unless it's Greek tragedy or Shakespeare. This selected shorts gives them their due, with stories about three flawed dads who need to find their own brand of fatherhood. In one, a Hollywood screenwriter is trapped in a classic fairy tale. In the second, roles are reversed when a young son guides his father out of despair. And in the third, a father and daughter start to drift apart, but a crisis brings them together. My own father, Morty Wallitzer, was a clinical psychologist a lover of jazz and cooking. He died of COVID in April of 2020, and of course we weren't allowed to be with him in the hospital. But the doctor who took care of him told us that every night, while my father was still well enough to speak, he would tell stories about our family. They charmed that doctor, but I like to think they also comforted my dad. Stories can do that. Two of the stories we're hearing on this show were featured on a program about fatherhood hosted by Dennis O'Hare, a wonderful actor who's also a dad. Here he is speaking from the stage at Symphony Space. To be honest, I never imagined I would become a dad as a gay man. It just seemed that it was kind of not in the cards for me. But my husband had always dreamed of being a dad. And so when he continued to talk about adopting year after year, I said, great, you can be a dad. I'll support your decision. He looked at me and he said as kindly as possible, "Um, if I'm a dad, you're going to be a dad too. And I was like, oh, right. And you know what? It's been wild, and it's been hard, and it's been rewarding, and it's been surprising, and it's the most amazing thing that I've ever been a part of. That was Dennis O'Hare sharing some thoughts about fatherhood from the stage at Symphony Space. Our first fatherhood story is by the incomparable Simon Rich, the author of six short story collections, most recently New Teeth Stories, and two novels. Rich is a funny man who can turn almost anything, a condom, a political protest, the Stone Age, into comedy. This time, the form is fairy tale, the target is Hollywood, and the theme, borrowed from the Entertainment Capital playbook, is what does a guy have to do to be a father in this town? Reader and dad Arian Moyad knows how to push things to their limits. His work includes his Tony-nominated performance in Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo and television series like Succession and Inventing Anna. Here he is with Beauty and the Beast by Simon Rich. Beauty and the Beast. Once upon a time in a land called Los Angeles, a screenwriter lived in a shimmering house on a hill. Although he had great fortune, he was selfish, vain, and cold. He was the kind of guy who definitely needed weekly therapy, but he only went every other week. Sometimes he would even cancel. One stormy night, his two-year-old daughter knocked on the door of his office and asked him to play with her. 
but the screenwriter was busy and he could not be bothered. So he carried the girl into the living room and said, Alexa, play Disney songs. And he left her sitting there in the cold, dark room so he can go back and address some studio notes. And as he typed, the screenwriter soon became distracted by the sound of Beauty and the Beast, which is what Alexa had randomly decided to play. So he went back out and started to turn down the volume, but the two-year-old would not let him. And instead, she demanded that he get on all fours and be the beast. And when he refused, she cried. So he got on all fours and crawled around and said, I'm the beast, I'm the beast, while the two-year-old laughed and said, Daddy is the beast, and this went on for like an hour. So as the screenwriter dragged his body across the rug, he caught sight of his hideous transformation in a mirror, and he realized that he had been placed under a powerful curse. And until he could learn how to open up his heart to his young daughter, or at least get her off this beast thing, he was going to have to keep playing this game where he was the beast. She was obsessed with Beauty and the Beast. And it was one of those things where you could tell just by looking at her that it was going to be a thing for like a long time. Seasons came and went. And the screenwriter's fate remained the same. Every day from the moment the two-year-old woke up, he would have to crawl around to the soundtrack of Beauty and the Beast unless she saw a blanket in which she would make him bunch it up around his waist like a skirt so he could dance like Belle. And he would spin around in circles saying, I am Belle, I am Belle, while she laughed and said, Daddy is Belle, and the screenwriter became ashamed. For the spell had transformed not just the screenwriter, but his entire household. The nightlight in the nursery had to be referred to as Lumiere. The sippy cups all became chip, and there was even a chair in the living room for some odd reason. Now that was Gaston. And the screenwriter's mother told him the spell was just a phase, and it would soon go away on its own. But if anything, it seemed to be intensifying. And once, in the middle of the night, the screenwriter heard the two-year-old singing, Be Our Guest. And so he went into her nursery to tell her to go to sleep, and he saw that her eyes were fully closed. She was singing the song, while asleep. And he was like, how do I get her off this thing if it's so deeply ingrained in her unconscious that she's literally dreaming about it? That the thing is in there so deep, as deep as it can get. This is fucking crazy. This is never going to end. And by winter, it got to the point where the screenwriter knew which blankets were bell dresses and which ones were beast tails. And one time, while he was on all fours, being the beast, she handed him the bell dress, and he said, mm, try again, honey. And he was like, what is happening to me? I'm correcting her? This is fucking crazy. I'm going to lose my mind. I'm actually going crazy. And he began to involuntarily sing along to the soundtrack. And at one time, when Alexa froze, he just kept robotically singing the words a cappella without missing a beat, including the spoken word exchange between Chip and Mrs. Potts at the end of something there that wasn't there before. 
And he realized he knew the entire soundtrack. And he was like, this is fucking crazy. And at this point in the tale, I think it is important to reveal another fact about this curse, which is that the soundtrack they were listening to 10 times a day was not the original Oscar-winning 1991 version starring Angela Lansbury, but the 2017 live-action remake featuring Josh Gad. And when the screenwriter requested that Alexa play the original animated soundtrack, Alexa refused. It would play only the Josh Gad one, probably because of some copyright thing. And the screenwriter grew to hate Josh Gad. And every time Gad deviated from the original classic score to deliver a new joke that had been added for the 2017 remake, the screenwriter would imagine Josh Gad getting a residual check as he crawled around, around on the rug, the screenwriter grew desperate to look up Josh Gad's net worth, but he couldn't walk over to this laptop because he was doing the beast right there and he couldn't ask Alexa because that would require him to interrupt the soundtrack and stop the constant flow of Gad, the two-year-old girl required at all times. Then one day, the screenwriter was crawling around to Evermore, which was an original power ballad written specifically for the 2017 remake, and he rolled his eyes at the cynicism of adding this unnecessary number, just so Dan Stevens could do a solo as the Beast and Disney could release an extra single? And the screenwriter began to think about how miserable it must have been for the creative team to compose a song under that mandate, to craft a number that not only lived up to the award-winning quality of the original Mencken-Ashman score, but also fit it seamlessly on a tonal, narrative, and aesthetic level. And he turned to his daughter and casually remarked, it's crazy that they pulled this off. <laughs> and she looked at him with a startled expression and said, Daddy is the beast. And even though this is what she said during the beast game, the screenwriter thought he saw a sparkle in her eyes, like maybe they had made some kind of connection, and that maybe, just maybe, there was something there that wasn't there before. <laughs> and then Alexa started playing the mob song, which is the number where Gaston tells everyone to kill the beast. And so the screenwriter and his daughter crawled over to the Gaston chair and shook it from side to side, which is what you do during the song, because Gaston was angry. And as they were shaking the chair, Josh Gad's character, LeFou, started singing one of his new 2017 version lines. And the screenwriter rolled his eyes, as he always did. But as the lyrics washed over him, he found himself really considering the impact for the first time. And he realized that this newly added couplet actually enhanced the overall story. Because it was in these two lines that LeFou turned against his idol Gaston, a story beat that was missing, and even dare say lacking from the original version of the film. And the screenwriter shook his head, marveling at the courage of the 2017 creative team to add so much depth to what had just been a stock comedic cipher. But of course, the credit was not theirs alone without a strong performance. The audience never would have brought this new version of LeFou he, you needed an actor with a versatility to pull off such extremes, the campy naivete of Gaston and the understated mournful introspection of the mob song. You needed someone special. And who answered the call? Who rose to that challenge? The incomparable Josh Gad. 
a once-in-a-generation triple threat talent who could do it all on stage and screen and make it look like it was a walk in the fucking park. And as the screenwriter was making these points in some detail to the two-year-old, he realized that at some point the soundtrack had stopped and he had actually stood up. He had transformed from the beast into a father who was having a sort of half-conversation with his daughter about the subject of mutual interest. And the curse had been lifted. And the screenwriter was so overjoyed that he picked up his daughter, spun her around in circles, while she threw back her hair and laughed. And even though he still had some more notes from the studios, he decided to put them off. And he held his daughter close and looked into her eyes and said, Alexa, what is Josh Gad's net worth? <laughs> and Alexa said it was estimated at $12 million. And the screenwriter kissed his daughter on the forehead and said, you know what, I bet it's more because of those Frozen movies. <laughs> and his daughter squinted at him and asked, what is Frozen? And the screenwriter said, never mind, there's no such thing. That was Arian Moyad channeling all those dancing chairs and teapots and one self-important Hollywood type to boot to bring you Simon Rich's Beauty and the Beast. It even had a happy ending, Hollywood style. My older son, who is now all grown up and recently had his own child, used to watch Barney the Dinosaur again and again and again. If I may be frank, it was pretty horrible, very repetitive and not in a good Philip Glass kind of way. But the truth about parenthood is that a lot of it is made up of doing something over and over. I plan on spending a lot of time with my grandchild, but if Barney starts playing in the background, good luck trying to find another free babysitter. Just to demonstrate how rich the theme of fatherhood is, our second piece, Victor Laval's Bedtime Story, couldn't be more different. We're out of La La Land and in another fabled capital, New York City, the city that never sleeps. Except that it's March 2020, the start of the pandemic, and it's as deeply asleep as if it had been put under a fairy tale curse. In our first story, Make Believe forces a self absorbed writer to step up as a dad. In this one, a concerned father needs a little make believe to help him make sense of things as he and his son navigate a strange new reality. Listening to it now, the experience may seem like something that is from the past and yet is still ongoing, not unlike parenthood itself. This story was commissioned for Selected Short's first-ever anthology, Small Odysseys, and read at a day-long event celebrating its publication by Dion Graham, known for television series like The Wire, and especially treasured in the audiobook world for his compelling narrations. Here he is with Bedtime Story by Victor Laval. Bedtime story. Who knew an eight-year-old could get depressed? Maybe you did, but I didn't. My son, Malachi Martin, kids at school call him Kai for short, or they did before school closed, before the whole city put up clothes for business sign. New York, New York, a city that never sleeps. Well, that's officially bullshit now. We went into hibernation on March 20th. It's been eight weeks since then. 
which leads us back to Malachi, my depressed child. He's the first one who noticed our building had emptied out. He said the neighbors had gone away, and I dismissed it. They're just staying in, I told him. But once he said it, I became aware of the silent streets. Our hallways and landings were quieter, too. I knew plenty of our neighbors. It wasn't unusual for me to be late getting Kai to school because I'd been catching up with someone in the lobby. But we stopped running into folks, and uh, I was getting him to school on time. And then, you know, the school's closed. I promised we'd figure out a way to keep up with his friends, but it turned out my kid didn't get much pleasure out of yapping with buddies on a screen. No privacy, no contact, and with all the internet glitches freezing their conversations, he might as well make small talk with a painting. I scheduled remote playdates, but Kai declined the invitations. Here's the way he was before. Kai could make friends with anyone. Eight years old or 80, he'd walk right up and tell you about the book he was reading or the dream he'd had the night before. Not everybody loved this, but most bloomed before his attention like a flower opens up to the sun. He gets that from his mother. She had to leave us four weeks into quarantine because her mom wasn't doing well. That didn't help Kai either. So imagine my surprise when he tells me he has an idea, how we could have some fun. I'm ready for anything, so that's what I think. Then he tells me he wants to go camping. Now, I am born and raised in Queens, New York. And the closest I've ever come to camping is when I learned to spell the word correctly in the second grade. But still, I propose sleeping in the living room or maybe the kitchen. And honestly, that's about all the choices I have to offer in our two-bedroom apartment. Not unless I'm going to propose we sack out by the toilet, and I wasn't about to do that. But he's already got a plan. He doesn't want to sleep in the apartment. He wants to sleep in the hallway, on the landing. Now, under normal circumstances, this would be the time I asked my eight-year-old, what on earth could he be thinking? What about when people walk on our heads as they step out of the elevator? But Kai points out the new reality. None of our neighbors are here. Six apartments on this floor, but only one is occupied. Everyone escaped except us. If his mother had seen me hauling blankets, pillows, and a pile of books into the hallway, she would have threatened to call Child Protective Services on me. But she wasn't here. It felt strange to lie down beside him out there. We were utterly unguarded. It felt like lying flat on a raft in the middle of the sea. Who knew what might appear from the depths? A sudden wave could capsize us. I knew I wouldn't fall asleep. I hoped he would. I brought my iPad out with us. I downloaded an app called Hearth. And you could pick from a hundred different fireplaces. And the wood inside burned and crackled until you closed the screen. Kai chose soapstone. He lay on his stomach, watching the fire. I felt like he wanted me to speak. But I struggled, searching for something soothing to say. When Grandma was only a little older than you, I finally began, she got hit by a car, broke both her legs, fractured her hip. Bad stuff. Bad stuff. She was 10. I looked to him, but he remained transfixed by the fire. I turned over in my stomach. She spent a whole year laid up. Her dad, my grandpa, worked at the post office, and he made a special trip once a week to the library 
picking up books for her. She cleaned out the whole branch before she could walk healthy again. She learned so much American history, she knew more than the teachers when she went back to school. Kai lay his head down, looking toward me. Now I could see he wanted to speak, so I stayed quiet long enough to let him. While she was laid up, he began, did she ever get scared? Scared that things would never get better? I was about to say something obvious, weave the connection between what she went through then and what we were going through now, but he looked at me with a kind of warning. Don't mess things up by trying to teach me a lesson. Instead, I lay beside him, listened as his breathing slowed, watched his body shift into easefulness. He fell asleep, and I refused every urge I had to pick him up, give him a kiss. All that soothing would have been for my sake, not his. That caught me by surprise, that I needed reassuring too. I'd been so focused on giving it to him. Kai shifted where he slept, and I watched his face. He glowed, and I lay there in his light, letting it warm me. Tomorrow night, I'd tell him about his grandfather, then about his mother as a girl, and what it took to reach this country. Tell him all of it so he would know his people, that he and I would survive. Thank you. Dion Graham performed Victor Laval's bedtime story. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Laval beautifully captures both the relationship between this father and child and the sense of surreality that engulfed us all during that period. After his reading, Graham spoke with us backstage at Symphony Space. The sun sounds delicious and precocious and arranges a little camping adventure in the hallway that I think teaches both the father and the son a lot of things about getting through things. And uh, I think that's a revelation to the father. And, you know, it starts off talking about, like, I didn't know an eight-year-old could get depressed. But I think truth is that maybe also the father's been a little depressed, too. I feel like we have weathered the journey well, but, you know, we've all gone through some things, and we all are probably still going through some things. But I could definitely relate to it, you know, as a parent, It's just been a time. It's been a time. And wherever we are, I'm not going to be so bold as to say we're on the other side, but wherever we are, I'm going to hope that we're better for the journey and hopefully feeling resilient coming out of it. I think it reminded us or let us discover that slowing down a bit, maybe a lot, can be a great thing. Not even just a good thing, but a great thing because amidst all the uncertainty and fear, it's also been, I think, a time of great opportunity for intimacy, you know, with family, friends, time for reflection, and just time for simplifying a little bit and finding out what's really important. That was Dion Graham backstage at Symphony Space. Bedtime Story also inspired a new work by an artist in another medium. On the day Dion Graham recorded his performance, our live audience was treated to a new movement piece by Leonardo Sandoval, performed by Adriana Ogle. 
If you enjoyed the story, check out the performance. You can find it as well as other performances inspired by the small Odyssey stories at selectedshorts.org. When we return, a father-daughter adventure story. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Can't get enough of Selected Shorts on the airwaves? Join us live on tour. This season, we're taking some of our favorite stories and actors coast to coast, with stops in Henderson, Nevada, Dallas, Texas, Irvine, California, Glen Ridge, New Jersey, Greenwich, Connecticut, Albany in our home state of New York, and more. Check out our website for a full list of dates and ticket links. We can't wait to see you there. On this show, a trio of authors offer different ideas about fathers and fatherhood. If you like this last one by Victor Laval, you might want to read the other tales in our anthology, Small Odysseys. You can find it on our website, selectedshorts.org, or at your favorite local bookstore. Our final story, by Percival Everett, could be thought of as old-fashioned. The central plot, A Crisis During a Hiking Trip, might have come from any girls' or boys' adventure books from the 1920s to the 1960s. Such tales were meant to model pluck and build character, and Everett says he read some of them when he was a child. But he situated his story in the present of cell phones and malls as a single dad tries to build a relationship with a rebellious 14-year-old daughter. Exposure is performed by the host of our Evening of Fatherhood stories, Dennis O'Hare, whose rich portfolio includes his Tony Award-winning performance in Take Me Out and full-bore creepiness in shows like True Blood and American Horror Story. But his website proudly shares his first role as a pig. And now he's a great actor playing a good dad. Here's Percival Everett's Exposure. Exposure. Benjamin Taylor's 14-year-old daughter was basically insane. This was what Benjamin thought as he studied the clock in the kitchen. It was nearly 4.30 in the morning. On a normal night, he would have been asleep, cracking an eye at his bedside clock and enjoying the idea of another half hour of sleep. Emma had gone out, she said, with her friends Kathy and Tanya to a movie in town, driven by Kathy's mother, she said, but Benjamin hadn't been there when she'd been picked up. He'd had a strange feeling about it when she called him on his cell phone. He'd been down at the stables, finishing up the last of the chores. He'd asked what she was going to do about dinner, and she said not to worry. She was 14, and lately was fond of telling him not to worry. Benjamin's wife had left long ago. It had taken him six years to realize that he had been no good for her, in fact, bad for her. Six years to understand that she had abandoned them as an act of survival. But still, he was angry she'd gone. Now he sat and waited for his daughter. The cell phone she'd talked him into buying for her went directly to her voicemail. 
He hated her outgoing message. She sounded like a kid trying to sound like an adult. Three days ago at the grocery store, she had refused to get into the truck and ride home with him. Come on, Emma, I don't have time for this foolishness. I'll find my own way. He was sitting behind the wheel, his door propped open with his foot, and she was standing at the open passenger window. What kind of way? It wasn't really a question, but he felt he'd step badly nonetheless in training a negotiation with a child. Away! Get in the truck. No! A woman stared at them as she walked from her SUV to the grocery market door. He made brief eye contact and the woman shook her head. He didn't know whether she was disapproving of his parenting or offering commiseration for having to deal with a recalcitrant teenager. Either way, he didn't care. Emma, he said, feeling helpless saying it. Emma gave him and the empty passenger seat a long look, and in that moment he realized that he had little leverage. His stern issuance of her name was a bluff. Just what could he do if she walked away? But she didn't walk away. For whatever reason, Benjamin wasn't questioning. Emma climbed into the truck. They headed back to the ranch together. There he would prepare dinner. That night there would be pork chops and rice and broccoli, and she would retire to her room and sit on her phone. But before that, there was a ride home. Are you mad at me? Benjamin asked. You always ask me that, Emma said. I guess I do. Are you? What do I always tell you? She looked out the window at the Tasty Freeze, where she and every other teenager in Lander went at nights and on weekends. It seemed like a throwback, but yet it wasn't. What do I always say? You know, I miss your mother too, he said, the words feeling stupid. He was already cringing at her response. Have you been watching talk shows again? She laughed. You don't miss her. She's not dead. She left us, and I can't believe you sucked me into this dumbass conversation. Benjamin kept his eyes on the road. They rolled past a Target store on the edge of town and started up the hill before the descent into the valley. A vehicle's wheels stirred the gravel of the yard. By the time Benjamin was outside, the car was just bouncing taillights and Emma was ten steps from the door. He studied the back of the car. Who is that? He asked. Friends, I won't ask if you know what time it is. Good. Have you been drinking? No. He stood in front of her on the porch. He thought better of asking to smell her breath, but he looked closely at her eyes. No, she repeated. He believed her, or wanted to believe her. It came with the same thing, so he did not challenge her. He took a long breath. Well, she said, go on upstairs and get some sleep. That's it. We'll talk in the morning, right. That right pushed him over the edge. Maybe you won't need much rest. What? Since you won't be going anywhere this weekend. I'm supposed to go to Kathy's on Sunday, she said. Afraid not. Kathy won't be having guests anyway. I talked to her mother. You didn't. Around midnight, a weird thing happened. I became worried about my 14-year-old daughter, so I called the person she said was giving her a ride. Guess what? Apparently, Kathy told her I was driving tonight. Shit. Yeah, I'm angry that you stayed out so late, but you're being grounded for lying. <laughs>
Emma said nothing else, but stormed into the house and up the stairs. She did not slam her door, and he knew that her failure to do so was meant to annoy him. Knowledge notwithstanding, it worked. He sat at his kitchen table and tried to figure out not what he had done wrong, but what he might do right. He decided he needed some time with his daughter, as simple-minded as that sounded, alone and away from their house. He would offer his corny attempt at some kind of remedy, and she would laugh, but he would force the issue. He would make her go hiking with him. He would not go to work, and he would drive her into the winds and hike up to Burnt Lake. She would complain loudly at first, and he didn't look forward to hearing that, but then it would get better. She was his daughter, so of course he loved her, but he actually liked her. He imagined that somewhere inside her, she felt the same toward him. The next morning, Emma walked into the kitchen to find the counter covered with sandwiches, water bottles, and fruit. Benjamin watched her as he mixed peanuts and chocolate chips in a plastic bag. What's all this? She asked. An outing, Benjamin said. She looked at the mix in the bag. Not a hike. Yep. I thought we'd go up to Burnt Lake. We used to go there a lot, remember? I remember. We need some time alone and we can get some real privacy up there. We have privacy here, Emma said. You know what I mean. Besides, here you have the phone and your computer, smoke signals. So go get your hiking boots on. You see, uh, there's a problem. Benjamin stared at her. No boots. I know you have hiking boots, he said. Yes, that's true, but I don't have hiking boots that fit. I've been doing this thing called growing, in case you haven't noticed. Well, we'll leave a little earlier and pick you up a pair at Lark's. Really, Dad? Really. You're serious about this? She said, I am indeed. Lark's was a feed and tack shop that also had a large boot department. Most were ropers and wellingtons and paddock boots, but there were some hiking boots as well. Emma hated all of them. I can't be seen in these things, she said. My feet look big enough as it is. That's because you have big feet, Benjamin said. Own it. No, it's not a tough hike. Just some sneakers will do. She looked at the lightweight boots. They're worse. You only have to wear them once. That's a waste of money, she said. Benjamin Mock stared at her. Who are you and what have you done with my daughter? Emma's shoulders sagged. Really, just once. Do the ones you have on fit? I guess. Then we'll get those. Just humor your old man. She started to unlace the boots. Now what are you doing? Benjamin asked. I'm not wearing these things out of here. No way. Okay, okay. Benjamin bought the boots and they got back into the car. Emma fiddled with the radio. My music, she said. Only my music. I wouldn't have it any other way. What the music came to is Emma cycling through the stations. There was a preponderance of religious chatter until she got up to a 100 in the dial, and there was only country music she detested at the upper end, and there were a couple of stations playing songs in Spanish. She went through twice. She tried to turn off the radio in disgust, but managed only to turn the volume near zero. Spanish music played softly just above the hum of the envin. I hate this place, she said. I know, honey. I'm sorry. Mom's in Seattle. How do you know that? Benjamin asked. She called. I see. 
He looked out the window at the view of the mountain. Have a good chat, I guess. Is that where she's living now? Thought she was in Spokane. Was. Emma looked through the lunch pack her father had put together. We talked about me visiting there. She opened a bag of chips, offered some to Benjamin. After he declined, she said, it's been a year. Goes by fast. What else did you talk about? Emma looked out the window and said nothing. Remember when we used to come up here a lot? The girl nodded. You tried to teach me to cast. I hated that. I'm sorry. It made me feel like you wanted a son instead of a daughter. Benjamin swallowed hard. I didn't know that. I just wanted to share stuff with you. I hated touching the fish. I didn't know. He felt small and suddenly tired. You probably won't believe me, but I was always happy to have you as a daughter. I knew you were a girl when your mother told me she was pregnant. Emma ate a chip. What did you bring to drink? Water. She made a face. He thought about apologizing, but didn't. Benjamin pulled the car off the road to trailhead. You know, we can just go back home if you want. Emma opened the box and looked at her boots. We're here. Let's just do this. You make it sound like we're on a mission, aren't we? Get your shoes on. Benjamin stepped out and tightened his own laces while he waited. Emma slammed the truck door and marched up the trail without him. He followed, caught up to her and grabbed her arm. Hold on a sec, he said. I didn't come up here to fight. I didn't bring us up here for a forced march. If you're that miserable, we can head down the mountain right now. He looked up the trail. I don't know what you and our mother talked about. Just know that I'll do whatever will make you happy. And safe, of course. What if I want to move to Seattle and live with my mother? Is that what she's offering? What if it's what I want? Of course I like having you with me. I want you with me. But I want to make you happy. Maybe you need your mother now. Maybe you just need a break from me. I don't know. A deer bolted across the trail about 30 yards up. I would understand that. If that's what she said, that you can come and live with her? Let's hike, Emma said. They covered the first easy mile in good time, Emma leading the way. Benjamin stopped at a mound of scat that the girl had walked past. She turned and came back to him. What is it? She asked. Well, not coyote, he said. Cougar, maybe. Pretty fresh. Emma looked up the trail through the aspens. What do you think? We've always had cats up here, Benjamin said. We can just head home if you want. No, let's go on. Benjamin looked at the mound of scat. The ground was bone dry and was no good for a sign. He tried to make out what might have been a track. I wish Doc Innes was with us. Cats are nocturnal. This scat is steaming. He looked around. So? Well, maybe I don't want to go on. Jesus, Dad! Are you wearing any perfume? He asked. What? Perfume. Are you wearing any? No. Are you having your period right now? Dad! Someone once told me that cats could be attracted to a menstruating woman. He'd also heard that this was a myth. Still, are you? No. Why are you so nervous? You're the one who always told me the woods are safer than them all. I don't know. You're right. I guess I'm just overprotective of my little girl. Give me a break. 
Emma started up the trail. Benjamin followed. They hiked another couple miles. The trail became steep, and Emma complained about her boots. I'm getting a blister on my heel, I think, she said. Well, let's stop. I've got some moleskin. Benjamin dug into his knapsack. We should eat our sandwiches anyway. You hungry? A little. Well, get that boot off. The other one feel okay? I think so. They heard a loud hiss. Both jumped. What was that? Emma asked. I don't know, Benjamin said. They sat quietly for a few seconds. Here, eat up. I'll get your foot squared away and we'll just head back to the car. What was that sound, Dad? Bear, maybe. Don't worry. He's not interested in us. He put the moleskin on Emma's heel. He put her sock on and her boot laced up. He patted her foot. Just like old times, he said. Thanks. Nice view, he said. They finished their sandwiches. Dad? Yes, sweetie. I'm sorry I stayed out so late. Okay, I'm over that. About Mom? Yeah. You're great, she said. Okay. But I'm a girl. Benjamin smiled at her. I'm aware of this. What if I want to live with Mom for a while? He looked off the edge of the trail at the valley below. I'd like to say I'd be understanding, but I can't. Your mother left us. She left you. I don't trust her now to be responsible for you. She's changed. Right. Benjamin felt small. He felt sick. This wasn't the father he wanted to be, but he could find nothing else. We'll talk about it later. Right. You're my responsibility. I have custody of you. If she wants to all of a sudden play mommy to you, then let her prove herself to the court. I can go if I want. No, you can't. It's that simple. Emma stepped away quickly on the slope. Benjamin moved to follow, but he landed on a round rock. What started as a skid escalated into a knee-buckling cartwheel off the side of the trail. Emma was scrambling down behind him even before he stopped rolling. Dad, are you all right? He tried to sit up, but fell back on the slope. He knew he'd done something terrible to his right leg. His ankle was sprained, dislocated, maybe even broken. He had to slow himself down to assess the damage. His heart was racing. His first concern was for his panicking daughter. I'm okay, he said. Really, I think I twisted my ankle. Daddy, Emma said. He could hear in her voice that she was seeing something he had not seen yet. He looked down to see that his foot was cast off to the side at a strange angle, almost 90 degrees to his leg. Fuck, Benjamin said, not so much out of pain as out of anger. Sorry. Does it hurt? She asked. I think it's about to start hurting, he said, realizing that adrenaline was ruling the moment. Let's get me up on the trail before it does. Benjamin pushed and Emma pulled and they clumsily managed to get him up the hill. His ankle was erupting in pain now. He screamed. Is it broken? I don't know, he said. Her hands hovered over his boot. No, leave the boot on. I think that's the thing to do. He reached down and felt it. It was painful to touch. It's dislocated, that's certain. What do we do? He hated hearing his child so frightened. The first thing is to relax, he said. I'm not going to die. 
All he could think was that they were at least four miles from the car. Let's see if I can stand. Are you kidding? Help me up. She did. He tried to put a little weight on his left foot, but it wasn't there at all. His foot flopped like a fish. You're going to have to drive down the mountain to get help, he said. What? I can't walk four miles. You can't carry me. It was then that they saw the cat on the other side of the arroyo. Dad, is that a cougar? Benjamin didn't answer. Daddy? Yes, baby, it's a cougar. Don't panic. I'm not panicking. Benjamin watched the animal disappear into the brush. The cougar looked to weigh about 100 pounds, but still looked thin. He saw this as a bad sign. If the cat was hungry, there was no telling what it might do. He couldn't let his daughter head down that trail. She was so terrified she might break into a run at any second and so trigger the cougar's chase instinct. When can I panic, she asked. Find me two sturdy sticks about two feet long, he said. Let's make your old man some splints. Let's get me mobile. How big? Strong sticks, an inch in diameter, as straight as possible. She stood and looked around. Stay in sight, he said. There should be a couple close by. While Emma searched for the sticks, Benjamin tried to straighten out his ankle. He couldn't do it. It hurt too much. He felt like a wimp. Emma returned with four possible splints. What about these? She asked. He chose two. These should work. Okay, now I need you to do something. What? You're going to have to pull my foot out so I can set the splints. Just pull it. I'm going to scream, but keep pulling until it seems straight. I don't know, she said. You've got to do it. It will be all right. I'll be screaming because your daddy's a big baby. Let's do it now. She grabbed his foot and let go, and he winced. Grab it, he said. She did. On three, pull hard and fast. He counted, and she pulled. Benjamin tried not to scream, and so made a noise that actually sounded worse. He broke into a sweat, and he might have passed out for a second. The sky was too bright for his eyes for a few seconds. He collected himself. Good. That's good. Good? Are you kidding me? Your leg is broken. Emma was shaking, her hands still floating over the injury. It's okay, baby. He sat up. He took off his shirt and belt. Here, tear the sleeves off of this. Benjamin positioned the sticks on either side of his ankle and secured them mid-calf with his belt. Okay, okay, he said. Let me have a sleeve. He wrapped the sleeve tight around his ankle and foot. Just touching it made him want to vomit. To handle the pain, he thought about Emma's fear. He tied the second sleeve above his knee. Is that it? Emma asked. Help me up. Benjamin got onto his good leg. The only good thing was that the break, if it was a break, was not compound. There was no blood, but there was plenty of pain. It quickly became clear that Emma was not going to be able to support him. I need some bigger sticks, he said. Crutches. The snarl of the cougar sounded in the arroyo again. He's still here, Emma said. Big sticks. Stay on task, he told himself. Focus, he said out loud. Focus. He scanned the ground above him. There, he pointed. 
Emma found a limb. This one? Yeah. And find another like it with a Y just like this one. She did, but it was a couple of inches shorter. Benjamin put the short crutch on his good side. He felt his way down the hill, keeping himself in front of Emma. He told her that if he fell, he didn't want to take her out with him. And he did fall twice. Daddy, this isn't working, Emma said. We'll be on ground that's less steep soon, and we'll be off this hard stuff too. The ground did level off a little, and under the canopy of trees, away from the exposed edge of the trail, the floor was more of a mat of plant matter. See, he said, easy peasy. I hate that expression. Noted. How is it, she asked. It hurts like hell. Benjamin was sweating crazily. His t-shirt was drenched, and he was starting to feel cold. He wondered if he would notice himself becoming disoriented if he started to suffer from hypothermia. Daddy, I'm sorry, Emma said. You have nothing to be sorry about, he told her. It's your old man who has to grow up. I'm sorry. Father and daughter stopped together on the trail. The cougar was not 15 yards in front of them, facing them, sitting like a dog. So much for easy peasy, Benjamin said. The cat growled. What do we do? Emma asked. We don't run, I know that, he said. He almost laughed as he considered his ankle. He was sorry to see that the animal was thin. That meant that it was probably hungry, but that was all he could see. The lion was backlit, so there was no face to see. That made it worse, Benjamin thought. Dad, how loud can you scream? Benjamin asked. What? I want you to scream as loud as you can while we walk forward, slowly forward. I'm going to scream too, so don't be startled by how loud your old man can get. Really? Now start screaming. And they did. Emma screamed, her voice child high and shrill. Benjamin put a little weight on his left leg and reacted to the pain, yelled at the lion. They clung to each other and made as much noise as possible. After three small dragging steps, the cougar had seen and heard enough. It ran off the trail and up the mountain. Emma started to cry and laugh at the same time. Benjamin started to buckle. The girl tried to catch him and then he caught himself. I'm okay, he told her. Let's keep this train moving before our friend decides to come back. You're shivering. Let's go. At least it's downhill, right? It took them three hours to make it to the car, looking over their shoulders the whole way. Benjamin was scared to death, much of him numb. He felt he was barely lucid. His shivering was out of control. He was suffering from exposure or he was in shock. Maybe he had hit his head in the fall without knowing it and had sustained a concussion. You're gonna have to drive, he told his daughter. I'm 14. I know, and so I know you can do this. He had Emma move the passenger seat all the way back. He had to be in the front to help her, to calm her if he could. He got into the car, pushed away his crutches, and Emma closed the door. She fell in behind the wheel. She started the car and looked at her father. Thank God I bought an automatic, he said. So what do I do? You know what to do. First, turn up the heat. She did. Now you move it to D and go. Just like that? 
Go slow, he said. Go slow. Emma moved ahead. Good, Benjamin said. Slow. He closed his eyes. He was starting to drift. You can do this, sweetie. Daddy? I'm fine. Daddy's fine. Just drive. That was Dennis O'Hare performing Percival Everett's Exposure. I'm Meg Wallitzer. There's genuine adventure story danger here, and it has to be dealt with immediately and practically. But even while the pair are desperately searching for splints and crutches, you can feel that an unbreakable bond is being formed. There's that wonderful moment when the daughter refers to her father as daddy, and you know the balance has shifted just a little. And sure, maybe things between them will go back almost immediately to how they've been, but still there's been an acknowledgement of a shift. And in the perilous parent and teenager territory, that counts for a lot. We asked Everett to comment on this great story. It's certainly the case that any encounter with danger that involves a companion changes everybody. Depending on your history, one might decide that the story means that they will need space from each other for a while. Some others might think it will drive them closer. The wilderness, nature, is something we fear in fiction, whether it's um, literature or film or television. Often that's because the people writing these things have never been in the wilderness. And so there's an element of fear of the unknown. But those things do exist, and they are encountered, and then they are dealt with by people who live with those places. Still, the scariest thing to me in the woods is the presence of other human voices, not the sound of a mountain lion. I've had the um, unfortunate circumstance of having to make a splint in the woods, but writing fiction is mostly research for me. Had I not had the experience, I would have found out how to. And if you can read about it, you can write about it. That was Percival Everett talking about his story, Exposure. Just as mothers aren't all domestic or bossy or overprotective, as we've demonstrated in many great reads, fathers aren't all distant authority figures. We've glimpsed fathers and children from various angles here, and the views are fresh and convincing. What resonates isn't only who the individual fathers are, but what happens when they and their kids are together, the teams they make, the dynamic or not-so-dynamic duos they become. The fathers we've heard from may be frail and sometimes imperceptive about their children, but they too are in the process of growing up. If you missed any of today's show and to hear bonus interviews and much more, please check out our podcast. And if you too want to be part of our show, then please check out the Selected Shorts Writing Contest. Every year, one of your favorite writers chooses a lucky winner, and the prizes are, I am in no way biased, amazing. $1,000, publication on electric literature, an actor performing your story at the closing night of Selected Shorts, and a free writing class with Gotham Writers Workshop. This year's judge is Anthony Doerr, author of Cloud Cuckoo Land, All the Light We Cannot See, and more. Visit SelectedShorts.org to learn more and submit by March 10, 2023, for your chance to win. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts.
Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producers circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.